0: Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Rikindi. Today we're joined by Donald Hoffman. Donald is a professor in the Department of Cognitive Science at the University of California and popular science author. Huffman studied consciousness, visual perception, and evolutionary psychology using mathematical models and psychophysical experiments. Author of over 120 scientific papers on this topic. And with his latest book titled The Case Against Reality, Why Evolution Hid Reality from Our Eyes, which is really the central theme behind this podcast. So, David, thank you so much for joining us today and welcome.
1: It's my pleasure. And thank you for your kind invitation, Alexa.
0: So, I just wanted to start with, you know, talking through what led you on this journey of discovering this theory.
1: Well, as a child growing up, I was influenced by both science and religion. My my parents had some advanced degrees. My dad had a master's degree in chemistry and my mom in bachelor's in biology. So they knew some science and, but they were also fundamentalist Christians. And so I was raised in two separate camps that had very, very different views. And so as a teenager, I, I began to, you know, really understand the tension between those views and decided I needed to try to figure things out for myself. And the the question that I boiled down for myself was, are we just machines? And I decided that that was a nice, clean, technical question to ask. And the right way to, to do it was to go and try to build a machine that could duplicate human behavior. And, and if we could, then maybe we are machines. If we can't, then I would learn something by the failure about this question. So I ended up going to to MIT as a graduate student in in studying cognitive neuroscience. So I was in what's now the Brain and Cognitive Science Department there, and in the Artificial Intelligence Lab. So I was studying humans and machines with the the goal of really understanding if anything. Special, uh, that got me along these lines more technically, and the work that I was in visual perception at the artificial intelligence lab and at the brain and cognitive science department. And I was working on specific problems in visual perception, how we see in 3d, how we see motion and how we recognize objects. But I realized that there was a general theory that was lurking there, that, that all of the specific theories that I was, and my, my friends there were working on there seemed to be a general trend behind all of them. So that got me launched on this idea of getting a general theory of perception, which then led me ultimately to this general theory about consciousness. So you can see that there was a long thread that, that, that took me there.
0: <laughs> you yeah, definitely, definitely. And, and I think one needs to have an open mind in order to step outside of the constructs that we've already pre- created for ourselves. And you have really done that to the most fundamental level. So I've, I've found that really interesting. So, talk us through the theoretical concept that we don't see reality as it is.
1: Right. So this comes from an application of the theory of evolution by natural selection. Surprisingly, because evolution by natural selection, the way we've all been taught it is that there are real physical objects like animals and food and resources of various kinds, and these are real physical things in space and time when they really compete and some die and and some survive and pass on their genes. And so it's a a bit of a surprise that when you ask the question from evolution, what is the probability that evolution would shape any sensory system like vision or touch or hearing or smell of any organism to show any truths about objective reality? Now that's a nice clean technical question. What's the probability that anybody would be shaped to see the truth or hear the truth or smell the truth about whatever the objectorality is? And the reason we can ask that as a technical question is because evolution by natural selection is, is a mathematically precise theory. Darwin's theory was transformed into a mathematical model by John Maynard Smith and, and others. Evolutionary game theory is what the, the field is called. And so I was able to use the tools of evolutionary game theory with, with my colleagues and graduate students. So it wasn't just me, it was the whole team of us. And I should mention my, my graduate students, Brian Marion and Justin Mark, and colleagues like Chaitan Prakash and, and Manish Singh and Robert Printner. So, so it was, a, and, and some, some others too that, you know, I, mean, I won't go the whole list, but so there was a whole, whole bunch of us that were collaborating on this technical question. Does evolutionary game theory have an answer to this? Would we be shaped to see the truth, or 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 not? And it turns out, I went into it thinking that, well, maybe seeing the truth would just take too much time and too much energy, and so evolution will do things on the cheap, and so we won't be able to see the truth because it's just too expensive. It takes too much time, and and that's part that's partly true, but it turned out that. When we actually went in and did the math, what the, the real surprise was the, the information is simply not there in what's called the fitness payoffs. The things that actually guide and drive evolution are the fitness payoff functions. We can talk about those if you, if, you, if you want, but there's these things called fitness payoff functions that are the sort of the drivers of evolution. And what we discovered is those fitness payoff functions simply don't have the information needed to shape you to see the truth. So if, if if the fitness paths don't have the information, they can't shape you to see the truth. And so, so, so there were a number of reasons why evolution shapes us not to see the truth. So, but at top level, let let me say this. I I should say that as a scientist, I don't know whether we see the truth or not, but what I do know is this, the theory of evolution by natural selection predicts the probability is zero that we see the truth, right? So now it's, So that's so that as a scientist, I need to be very, very careful. I'm not saying I know the truth here, but, but our best theory about biological evolution is very, very clear. The probability is zero that any organism knows any aspect of, of objective reality truly. Instead, what, what evolution does is it shapes our sensory systems to guide adaptive behavior. Adaptive behavior is a behavior that keeps you alive long enough to reproduce successfully. Period. That, so, and and if if you ask an evolutionary biologist, does does evolution shape our sensory systems to guide adaptive behavior? They'd say, of course. I mean, that's what evolution does. And 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 so what we discovered is, wait, they do that and nothing more. A lot of people think, well, in addition to guiding adaptive behavior, they also shape are shaped to see the truth. Nope. That's not in the theory that the, the theory says, that's not what's goes, what, what goes on now, one could say, look, well, so much the worse for evolutionary theory. And that's perfectly fine, but we have nothing to replace it. Right there, there, there are no serious contenders right now for, you know, for our understanding of, of biology that are anywhere near the, the depth and explanatory power of evolution, by natural selection. So that for better or worse is our best theory at this point for biology. And that theory is very, very clear. The probability is zero. But, I, you know, as a scientist, my attitude is uh, people can always try to tinker with the theory. Good luck. It's not easy to tinker with with Darwin's theory and, and not have it just fall flat on his face. But go ahead and try. <laughs> so, that, that's, so you can see. I, I'm not saying that I think evolution, uh, that I think that we don't see the truth. I don't know. But evolution... Is very, very clear. The evolution of natural selection is very, very clear. We don't see the truth. And we have no better theory. So as a scientist, I have to take it quite seriously that we don't see the truth.
0: And I think some examples that I saw you gave in your TED Talk was having a beetle in Australia try and mate with a bottle because it saw, okay, bigger is better. Therefore, and if it's bumpy. Or another example you gave was a bull, you know, trying to mount on a, a statue bull And so whatever it looked like potentially could be a possible outcome for mating or natural selection, that's the direction it's going. Is that kind of the basis in which you are bouncing us off of? Is that in order for us to reproduce, we want to find the best possible mate and or have the best chance of survival?
1: Right. So that's what evolution is very, very clear about that our sensory systems were shaped for to that end, to allow us to, you know, feed fight, flee, and mate. (laughs) Basically the, the the famous four Fs for, you know, keeping us alive long enough to reproduce. So, so, and the examples of the beetle and, and, and and these, all these foibles where you can see something's gone wrong with the perceptions of these, these animals is, is, is not sort of a proof. It's more just an intuition pump. It's to help people sort of get the idea. But, you know, we can go into, you know, some people will, will raise logical arguments. So how how do I know the truth if, you know, you know if, if evolution you know, keeps us from seeing the truth? So we can go into those kinds of questions if you want.
0: Yes, no, definitely, definitely. I would just like to first really build the solid foundations as well as, you, you know, so speaking about, so we've gauged that evolution shapes us to want to Find the best possible outcomes, have the best chance of survival. And our visual cortex, we have all of these errors within the way that we see the world. And, and we can, we can gauge that quite well. At what point in this evolutionary chain do you think that that started to, to happen? That we started to adapt to become are all animals within the animal kingdom have the same predisposition? Do bacteria or is it more complex life that started to build this way to view reality?
1: Well, so it turns out that, that evolution allows a lot of different strategies for reproduction. And, and so some, some organisms, what, one of the trade-offs you have is how much of your calories do you want to spend on thinking and planning versus moving and just eating? Like, right? so you have this trade-off because Every, all, all the calories. So, humans, for example, we spend about 20% of our calories on our brain, right? So, that, that's a, that's a very expensive organism, organ within, within ours. So, it's very expensive and the payoff better be pretty good. And, and the reason it works for us is that brain helps us to, to not waste time in getting food and mates and so forth. It did really, but other organisms like bacteria, like E. coli, for example, don't have a brain and they sort of are random in their their search for food. They literally, they go up along, spinning along one direction. And if the food gradient is great, then they just keep going. If they don't like the, the food, then they just take a random new change of direction and start going and see if that works better. So you can see there. You know, and, and so we have that kind of trade-off and those are different strategies also in terms of how many how many children or offspring you have and and how much care you you take so humans typically we're we're biased more towards having very few offspring and and investing heavily in them whereas some organisms like spiders will have hundreds of them have hundreds of offspring and toss them to the wind and maybe eat a few of them themselves you know it's so it's very very different strategies but but as long as from an evolutionary point of view, your genes get into the next generation, that was a successful strategy. So so you can see that, that there's not one way to succeed at at getting your genes into the next generation. And and but seeing the truth is not a strategy that ever works. And so that's that's not even on the table for any of the organisms.
0: And I have considered you've also got then the background in data science. So how did this method merge with your understanding of computer science?
1: Well, so of course the computer science was very helpful because we first ran simulations, evolutionary game simulations and genetic algorithms. Those were what convinced me that there was something real here. And then I went to a mathematician, Chaitan Prakash, and and he he proved these theorems. So computers were very helpful in, in that regard. In terms of artificial intelligence, of course, computers are extremely helpful in understanding adaptive behavior and intelligent behavior. And and that's what sort of launched me because I was working at the artificial intelligence lab at at MIT. So it was actually trying to build a vision system, not just talk about it, but build one that that's the, that's the difference when you actually, you know, it's one thing to sit back and shoot the breeze with your friends and talk about it. But when you say, "Okay, now go build one that works," build a vision system that can actually see in 3D and recognize objects. That's a different game. All of a sudden, you you can't you know you can't mess around anymore. You have got to actually put up or shut up. So you have to actually so that the computers are really really helpful because they're really stupid. You have to tell them everything that they're going to do if you want them to implement a program for seeing in 3D. If, if you get even one letter wrong in your program, it might not work at all. So, so you have to tell them down to the last dot and tittle, you know, what to do exactly. So that that's, that's a really good discipline trying to build an AI system, for example, for me, because it let me not, you know, mess around and BS myself and think I knew more than I knew. If it didn't work, then I had to go back to the drawing board. So that was really important to actually have the computer. Because the computers are so stupid, you have to tell them everything. And that means you have to know everything to tell them. And that means you can't just sort of wave your hands over stuff. You've got to learn all the stuff. And, and eventually the computers will then teach you because you write a program and finally it's working, but it's not working the way you expect it. The outcome is different. Then you go, oh, I didn't think about that correctly. I need to read. So, so they're very, very useful to keep you from just a hand wave. And, and it's very easy for us to think we know more than we do and fool ourselves, but when you can build a computer program that actually works, it doesn't mean that that you know everything, but you sure learned a lot
0: in the process. And so what did one of these computer programs look like, just so that I have an idea of what one of these simulations would have looked like once you had really narrowed down on ensuring that everything you had coded was correct?
1: Well, so for example, my graduate students did simulations of the genetic algorithms, Justin Mark and Brian Marion. And their code would just be probably for that It was probably just three or four pages at most of, of, of code in C or something like that, that they they wrote. So it wouldn't be a lot of code, but what you, and if you did it in something like Mathematica, then it could be very, very short piece of code because it's a very high level language. When I was working at MIT, I was, I implemented some stuff in the language called Lisp, which is. It's, it's, it's not very used very much now, but we had what were called Lisp machines at MIT, which were pretty, at the time, they were pretty fast. And so I, I implemented my some of my work on you know, visual perception of, of of 3d objects and, 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 and object classifications and so forth using Lisp in, on a Lisp machine. So but there's, you know, there's dozens of different languages that that you can can use right now. I'm using Mathematica quite a bit because it's a very powerful high level language for for some of the simulations I'm writing now.
0: Yeah, okay, cool. Awesome. So you've created these algorithms that have really allowed you to take these ideas that you've thought about and then see them in real time through computer simulations. And so out of that, you've really come to the idea that the world is a, the way that we see the world is sort of like a desktop or a user interface. And that actually reality is not really how we can physically see it, how we think that we perceive it. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, that's right. So evolution it shaped our senses to play the game of life, but not to see the truth. So, so for example, if you're playing a game like a, a virtual reality game, like Grand Theft Auto, and you have it on a headset, right, and you're so you see a, a, a red Ferrari on your right, you see your own steering wheel, and you see a, a green Mustang on your left. You're seeing what you need to see to play the game of Grand Theft Auto and try to win that game. But what are you really doing? Well, it's just, there is no red Ferrari in the supercomputer that's really running the game. So there's some supercomputer somewhere that's running this game. What you're really doing is toggling millions of voltages in a specific sequence. And you have to get the sequence exactly right to, to win the game. But if you had to actually toggle those voltages by hand, you, you couldn't win the game. Someone who just, has a steering wheel and a gas pedal will beat you over over someone who sees the truth about the voltages that you're toggling and so that's a good metaphor for what evolution has done for us it 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 hid the truth that we're actually interacting with and the, the reality that we're actually manipulating it it hid that because we don't need to know it in fact that would slow us down and it just gives a simple headset To play the game of life. So space and time and objects are just a virtual reality headset that that were evolved to let us play the game of life and stay alive long enough to reproduce. So that's sort of the metaphor that comes out of evolution by natural selection is that what we're seeing is just virtually that lets you play the game of life. And, and, you know, in, in video games, if you get enough points and don't get killed, then you go to the next level of the game. And evolution is similar, but you don't go to the next level of, of, of. So, so there's a little difference between evolutionary theory and, and, and the video game. But other than that, it's a pretty, pretty good analogy. We're, we've been shaped to play the game of life like according to evolution. But And again, by the way, I, I should always say, I'm not saying that this theory is the truth. Evolution by natural selection is the truth. I, I'm not saying that at all. I am saying that we have no better theory. And it's not clear how to get a better theory right now, but a hundred years from now, we probably will. So, so, but, so I'm not trying to, to say that I've got the final word on anything here, I'm just saying our current best science of biology is evolution, by natural selection, and that theory is very, very clear. This is a virtual reality headset, not the truth.
0: So you and I are having this conversation, right? And I mean, you know, unfortunately, we're not doing this in person, but I can see you and I can see the world around me. And right now you and I are communicating and we have some shared interface or interaction is what you're saying is both of us are real, but how are we then communicating to one another? And how do you know that either myself or you is even real? What is this sort of communication between you and I and everyone else that I see this world work?
1: That's a great question. And and we should distinguish two different notions of real. So we sometimes use real to to mean that something is real if it exists, even when it's never perceived, when when it's not perceived. So we might say that the moon is real because it it, it existed, you know, before there were any creatures that could even see it, right? You might say that. So that's one sense of real. So I call that objectively real. And then there's a different kind of real where you might say, you know, I, my headache, I've got a real, I've got a really bad headache. Well, that headache is not objectively real in the sense that it only exists in my perception. And if, if there was no one there, okay. So, so it is not objectively real in the sense that we might think the moon is objectively real. So, so we might say that that's subjectively, subjectively real. And but the, evolution of natural selection is telling us is that even the moon is only subjectively real so there there is nothing objectively real that everything is only subjectively real it, you know at least everything that we experience even mountains like mount everest and so forth that we think have been there for a long long time though those are just part of our interface they're only they're when we render them so so now evolution does not tell us what's behind the interface right? All it tells that the theory is strong enough to tell us that we're not seeing the truth, but evolution can't tell us what the truth is. So I'm getting to your question. But it takes a little while to, 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 to answer. So, so what's going on when you and I are talking? Well, whatever's going on, it's not what we see. And it's not what we think is, you know, it's not, it's not physical bodies in space and time. That that's not the, that's just the headset version. There's some deeper reality outside of it. So, and evolution can't tell us what it is. And so I'm proposing with some, again, some of my colleagues like Chaitan Prakash and, and Manish Singh and, and, and Robert and others that, that reality beyond space and time, beyond our headset is consciousness. And so that consciousness is the reality and. Well, space and time and in organisms, everything we see is just a VR headset that some, some consciousnesses use to interact with others. So when you and I are, finally to get to your question, when you and I are interacting, the proposal I have is that what's really interacting are our consciousnesses. That's what's really interacting, but we're interacting via a a complex headset that we call space and time and physical objects. And in that headset, we've wired up things called Zoom and and, internet and so forth. That, that, that allow us to, to interact. But what's really interacting are consciousnesses that are not inside space and time. Space and time is inside the consciousnesses. Just like if you're, if you're playing a game of Grand Theft Auto, right? And you have a VR headset on, you will, your avatar is immersed in the Grand Theft Auto environment. So you have an avatar there, but you are not in the game. The game is in your head. The game is entirely within your consciousness. So space and time and the physical world around us, even the moon and the sun, those aren't things outside of us. Those are things inside our consciousness, inside our headset.
0: Wow. That's, that's just, it's very beautiful. Okay, so I'm just trying to absorb this. We are... Okay, how can you then, so with space and time, if we are consciousness within or outside of, of space-time, because currently the faster you move through space-time, so if you're traveling closer to the speed of light, your time would slow down compared to everyone else's around you. With this notion, can you then perceive that as in you can travel through space-time because space-time is, let's say, a dimension and you are the consciousness that exceeds that dimension?
1: Right. So, by the way, I, I'm trying to grasp this too. So, when you said you're having, you know, hard, hard time, sort of, I've, emotionally for me too. This is this is really wild. So, it, it's it's difficult emotionally because we're we're sort of born believing that we're seeing the truth, right? So, this is this is not easy. But space and time, according to this whole framework, is just the headset. And as scientists, we can. Start to look for what's beyond the headset. We can actually ask: can we get a mathematical model of reality outside and beyond space and time? And by the way, the physicists are already doing this. So evolution by natural selection says that space and time are not fundamental. But you might say, well, the physicists will know better. I right? mean, that's that's their that's their area. They're gonna then, Maybe they'll laugh at evolution. They'll say, they, "Well, we know better. Physics, space and time are fundamental." Well, no. It turns out that they're they're saying things like space time is doomed. That's David Gross, who won the Nobel Prize for his work on you know the strong force. I believe he has a two thousand five paper where he you know it's it, two thousand five was the hundred year anniversary of Einstein's theory of space time, and so he he on the hundred year anniversary he first you know tipped his hat to, to Einstein. Thank you very much. A wonderful theory. But now space-time is doomed. We're, we're moving on. That is not fundamental. And he, he explains why. And, and the and the reason why is that Einstein's theory itself, together with you know, his theory of gravity, together with quantum theory, entails that space-time has no operational meaning. It, it, it literally has no operational meaning below something called the Planck scale. It falls apart at 10 to the minus 33 centimeters in 10 to the minus 43 seconds so and so it's a very shallow data structure as it turns out it's it's i mean if it was 10 to the minus 33 trillion centimeters i might be impressed but 10 to the minus 33 that's that's it's it's so we're our headset we got a cheap headset and and so space time is you know so the physicists recognized now we, we we got this headset and it falls apart at just 10 to the minus 33 centimeters so it can't be fundamental what What is beyond what is on the other side of this headset and just in the last 10 years, so this is brand new stuff. They found a a couple structures beyond space-time, something called the amplitude. yeah, they, so yeah, they found the Amplituhedron. This is, for example, Nima Arkani Hamed um, and his collaborators at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton. And the deepest structure they found is something called decorated permutations permutations like taking cards and shuffling them, different orderings that that's what a permutation. the believe it or not, we can go into it if you're interested, but um. they've discovered that that decorated permutations are the deepest structure beyond space time that they found. So, so evolution tells us that space time is not fundamental. Einstein's theory of gravity together with quantum theory tells us the same thing that space time isn't fundamental. Those theories are not able to tell us what's beyond. So what the scientists are doing are saying with the physicists, for example, are saying, well, we need to guess some new structures beyond space-time and then see how they project back into space-time where we can test them. And so they've guessed these new structures like the amplituhedron and, and then they discovered these decorated permutations and what they, they can show us <clears throat> these structures outside of space-time allow you to compute important things in space-time like at the colliders where we smash particles together and you have like two gluons smash into each other and four gluons go spraying out and you're, you're trying to compute the probabilities for these various things, happen. what they call the amplitudes. It turns out <clears throat> these structures beyond space-time let you compute all of the scattering amplitudes for all of the processes, all the particle processes, and they make it easier. If you do it in space-time, something that could be hundreds of pages of algebra to compute in space-time, three or four terms... When you let go of space-time and, and go to this deeper reality beyond space-time, so you're you're, you're tapping into something that's that's deeper, and, and and therefore the math gets simpler, which isn't to say simple, <laughs> but but simpler than in space-time, and also you see new symmetry. So they're seeing new, the physicists are finding new symmetry, something called the infinite Yangian symmetry that's true, but you can't see it in space-time. So when you let go of space-time. All of a sudden, the math gets easier, and you see new symmetries that are true. So, but they don't know what this new world is about. I mean, we found these mathematical structures beyond space time; they work, but there's no dynamics. So, so what's going on? There's no notion of a dynamics. These are just static structures sitting there. So, so we're at this. You know, it's it's like you know Columbus. Of course, we now know that Columbus wasn't the first to discover America. other indigenous people here were here centuries or even millennia before. But anyway, you know, the metaphor we talk about sometimes is Columbus, and, and and so we've just stepped outside of the confines of space and time. Just in the last ten years, we're finding these structures, but we don't know what they mean. We're, we're, the physicists don't know what they mean, but but it's, so it's really quite exciting. But now to get to your question, <laughs> once we really understand the first level of software beyond space time. We won't have to go through space time. We'll be able to go around space time. So, you know, the nearest galaxy to the Milky Way galaxy, where we live is the Andromeda and it's 2.4 million light years away. So if you wanted to go to just our nearest neighbor galaxy, the closest one to us would take you 2.4 million years, which means that neither you nor your kids nor your grandkids are going to make it. It's just so. Go back to the virtual reality metaphor, like the Grand Theft Auto metaphor, right? And you can imagine someone who's a wizard at Grand Theft Auto. They, they know how to drive the car really fast. And they can beat everybody. And, and you, you're very impressed that they can drive through the Grand Theft Auto world as fast as anybody could. But now imagine that you're the software engineer who wrote Grand Theft Auto. You know the software. Well, you can do whatever you want. You can take the gas out of the tank of the wizard. You can give them a flat tire. You can change the geometry of the roads. So in other words, you can do what look like miracles from within the grand theft auto world. So once we understand our space time headset and how it works and the software behind it, we can just basically go around. We can, we won't have to go through space time to Andromeda. We'll go around space time. So we won't need rockets. We'll have some other technology just like right now. Before we understood Maxwell's equations and, and some things about electromagnetism, if I wanted to talk to you in Australia and I'm in California, I would have to get on a boat and I would have to go there, or I'd have to write a letter and send it on a boat to, to go. But now we don't, We there are magically through, in, through some world that's invisible electromagnetism, we're talking directly from Australia to California and that wouldn't have been even conceivable to someone in, you know, 1800, this would, this would seem like a supernatural magical thing that we're doing absolutely impossible. And, and, but, but, but here we are doing it. And so I, I like to pr- predict that the same thing's going to happen again. We won't need to go through space time. We'll go around it.
0: Wow. So when I'm looking at. The double split experiment. That was one of the experiments that, when I learned about it, it it blew my mind. I I, I that what made me fall in love with science to an end, like just, and it made me then get really interested in this exact topic. What is our reality? And so, how would you say then that was? And and even now it was quantum computing. I read this research paper recently where they actually created a black hole within quantum computing. And I just thought, or wormhole, sorry, not a black hole, wormhole. And so I was just curious, how then would you relate this understanding, if you can, to, to quantum mechanics and quantum physics?
1: Right. So what the physicists have discovered, the ones who are saying that space-time is doomed, they've also discovered that quantum theory is doomed. It's not fundamental. And these new structures that they've discovered beyond space-time are also beyond quantum theory. But they they project down to space-time and quantum theory so so the weirdness of quantum theory the, for example the double slit experiment the, the fact that you have we have to talk about superpositions of states and so forth in quantum theory and then they collapse when you measure make a measurement the they, so-called collapses from all of these possibilities you don't know what the real you know position or momentum is you have to write down this you know complex wave function which gives perhaps an infinite range of possible values for the position or the momentum or whatever it might be. But then when you make the measurement, that infinite number of possibilities collapses to one. Well, that's just the symptom of a headset, right? Your headset is collapsing a much more complicated reality into your headset. And so if you're trying to guess what's going on beyond the headset, you have to use... yeah, probabilities for what what's going on. So 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 what what these physicists are saying now is that space time is doomed, and space time and quantum theory together will emerge, joined at the hip together from these deeper structures like the amplitude So even quantum theory is, is is not deep enough. It's really it, all the weirdness of quantum theory really is just a symptom of the fact that space time is our headset. It's not the truth. If it were the truth, we wouldn't need the superpositions, but because it's, it's not the truth, it's, it's a, it's a, a drastic simplification of a much richer reality beyond the headset. That's why we have, we have to write down probabilities or am, probability amplitudes. We can't just write down the state of the world because present a, a state of the world. It's just a headset. The reality is much more complicated than the space time headset. So you can see that the quantum theory itself and all the weirdness just falls out of the same point of view.
0: Wow. Okay. And so then what about having multiple dimensions? So I read ages ago, there was like an 8e theory and some people said there may be 12 dimensions or six dimensions. Would you then say that there would be multiple dimensions within this headset or?
1: Russ, So the physicists are looking for, you know, dimensions that might be helpful to them within space-time. So Einstein's the theory of, of special relativity is has a four dimensional, right? There's one dimension of time and three dimensions of space, but they're all integrated into space time. In string theory, you might have 10 or 11 or so dimensions. And those tend to, they think of them as being, for example, curled up inside space time, you know, where we can't, we, we can't see them. So there are the macroscopic dimensions, and then these ones that are small and curled up. But even th- that's not going far enough. What would really, What the physicists are now saying in the last 10 years is we need to jump entirely outside of space-time. The hedron could have trillions of dimensions. It's a structure really beyond space-time entirely. And its volume actually encodes the scattering amplitude for a, a particular particle process. So is it, and the geometry of its face. So it's like a big jewel but in high dimensional space. So it's got all these facets and edges and points on it. And it's the structure of those, of the faces and the edges and the points that codes for properties of space, time, and quantum theory, locality and unitarity. So so this is a whole new fun world. So quantum theory is not fundamental by a long shot. It's it's trapped with space time and they're going to emerge together from these deeper structures, that could have trillions of dimensions, but the physicists have no notion about a dynamics. So what's going on, right? These are just like, like in the, you know, the movie 2001, a space odyssey, where there's the monolith that's just sitting there and all the apes first, they're afraid of it. And then they crawl up to it and they start panting on it and screaming at it. They, they, they know it's important, but they have no clue what it really means. Well, that's where we are, right? We, we found. The amplituhedron and these decorated permutations. There are these these monoliths outside of space time, and they're making the math easy, and they're giving us the right answer, and they're pointing to symmetries that turn out to be true that we couldn't see. So so they're just full of meaning, but there's you know there's no dynamics. The physicists have no dynamics, and so we're at this really fun time where we're the apes beating on these monoliths, and and in the paper that we just published last week. We give in that paper, as far as I know, the first dynamics behind decorated permutations, we, we prove in that paper that, that Markovian dynamics, that any Markov chain can be projected into these decorated permutations and Markov chains are a dynamical systems. And so we proved that and we published that last, last week. And so we, and. The reason we went after that was because our theory of consciousness beyond space-time is a Markovian dynamics. And so we, you know, six months ago, I I said, well, look, the physicists have found that these structures beyond space-time, the deepest structure they found are decorated permutations. They have no dynamics. We have this dynamics of consciousness beyond space-time. So if I could project that consciousness dynamics down to decorated permutations, and the physicists will take me all the way into space time. They've done all, all the hard work. So I said, well, so thank you. Let me, so all I need to do is find out how you Markov chains project to decorated permutations. So we did a literature search and no one had ever studied it. So you know, there, there was no, so we, we invented the math, but we, we, we discovered this math. And so we've, so it's, it's a general result that any Markov chain has a canonical projection into decorated permutations. And so now we've given the physicists for the first time a dynamics behind the monoliths that they've discovered. We're calling it a dynamics of consciousness. If they don't like that, they could put it whatever they want there. But there is a dynamic that you can write down. It's not going to be comfortable whatever you put there because think about it. There's something outside of space-time that's doing something we're gonna to have to wrap our heads around that. W- what are these things outside of space time that are doing something? <laughs> well, what what I'm saying is, it's, it's you and me, it's consciousness, our consciousness is entirely outside of space time. And space time is just our headset. So we are the consciousnesses that are outside of space time, and that are projecting down through decorated permutations into this headset. So basically, physics has been studying our headset. And they just they by in the last 10 years, they've gone outside the headset and they found the, f- the first layer of software outside of it, namely the amplituhedron and the decorated permutations. What we said was great. And now here's the deeper software of consciousness and how it projects down to the, the software you found of decorated permutations. So, So we're starting to piece together what's going on beyond the headset, which is why I'm sanguine that maybe in my lifetime, We'll be able to go to Andromeda outside of space-time instead of through space-time.
0: Okay, so what in your eyes is consciousness? What is how would you define consciousness? And and can we interact how are we interacting in this world? How how is this?
1: So so by when when I talk about consciousness, I'm talking about something very straightforward in our everyday experience, like the experience of tasting chocolate or having a headache or smelling a rose or having an itch and, and needing to scratch it. So these are all conscious experiences and the experience of colors and so forth. So there there's the range of human experiences, but then I countenance the possibility that there are countless experiences that are totally beyond what any human has ever had. So I'm not limiting the notion of conscious experience to the things that human could, humans can experience. Presumably, there what we can experience is a trivial, trivial, tiny subset of the whole range of possible experiences mm-hmm. that, that that are out there. So I first propose that there are the, the, all human experiences, as I mentioned, but there is the tiny subset of the whole range of possible experiences. But then when we... The mathematics forced me to look at something else as well. um, My attention was initially just on all these experiences. And that's what I meant by consciousness. But when we actually go to write down a dynamics of these experiences, you're forced mathematically to write down a probability space on which the dynamics happens, right? Like a Markovian dynamics, you have to write down a, a space where the dynamics happens. So to be very, very clear, suppose I just want to talk about a simple thing like I'm going to toss a coin twice. I'm going to flip a coin twice, and I want to talk about the probabilities of the outcomes. Well, well, it could be heads, 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 tails, tails, heads, tails, tails, tails right so so before I do this the possibility, I have to write down it could be heads, heads, it could be tails, tails or heads, tails, or tails, heads, or it could be the empty set. Maybe I, maybe i I didn't flip the coin so so those are the 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 kind of outcomes. So we call that a probability space, writing down all the possible outcomes. So I was a little slow about this. I was I had to write down a probability space and I did it because you just have to do that mathematically. But it took me years to go back and go, well, what is that probability space? What what does that mean? And I know about experiences, but what about that probability space? Because that probability space is there. The mathematics is just sitting there, even if there's no experience I'm having right now. So the way I interpret that probability space is that is a mathematical pointer to awareness without content, without any specific. So what, what meditation people talk about when they meditate to the point where they're aware, but they're not aware of any particular thing. There are no experiences, no colors, no nothing. They're just pure awareness. That's what it points to. So when I talk about consciousness, I'm talking about a pure awareness, which is this potential for, which has the potential for any kind of conscious experience. Then also this dynamics of conscious experiences that, that, that comes out of it. So that's what I mean by, by consciousness, that, that whole thing and all of that is, is modeled by the mathematics, but it's not explained by the math. So, and I should say what I mean by that, every site, every scientific theory makes assumptions. And then it says, if you grant me these assumptions, then I can explain all this other fun stuff, but I, but if you don't grant me these assumptions, I have nothing. The assumptions of the theory are the miracles of the theory. It's what the theory can't explain is what it is assuming. And so in our theory, We're assuming that there are conscious experiences. That's the starting point. We can, we can talk about their dynamics. We can, we can talk, we can do a lot of science about those experiences, but the experiences themselves are the foundation of, of our particular, of our particular theory. So we explain where that we can explain relationships among experiences, for example, that we can do, but just the raw existence of, of experiences, that's taken as an assumption of our theory. So there in science, there is no theory of everything period. There is no such thing as a theory of everything. There's only a theory of everything, except my assumptions. And, and a a new theory might say, well, I can explain those assumptions. Great. Then it can explain those assumptions, but your new theory will have its own assumptions. And so it will still be a theory of everything except its own assumptions. So that's why we have science has no theory of everything, but we do science because precise. And they tell us precisely their limits. So a good theory, and that's, that's the real power of a scientific theory. It's so precise that it tells you precisely the limits of its own explanation. And that's what we want from scientific theory.
0: Wow. So would you then, so you'd have a lot, trying to understand things philosophically, as in speaking about, you know, the one beautiful thing I love is like, we are all consciousness experiencing itself. Like, what happens if all of this really is just consciousness experiencing itself? And that fits into that whole world, all within that one bubble. What happens if we are in this, this space planet you speak of? What happens if that's a simulation? What happens if all of this actually really is? A simulation and therefore all the mathematics everything that we do within the simulation fractals you look at things and and the, everything revolves around these fractals or specific mathematical formulas the golden ratio do you think about that
1: right so so my my take on it is, is like as you said that that there is this one consciousness and you and i are just avatars that this one consciousness is put on in this particular headset so so you and i are basically the one consciousness talking to itself through two different avatars and anytime we interact with other people or or even an ant or a cow we're we're it's the one consciousness interacting with itself through a particular space-time headset but my view is that this headset isn't special there are this is a particular this is a cheap one when we're actually consciousness playing with a fairly cheap headset, you know, only 10 to the minus 33 centimeters and it falls apart. So so we're we're in, you know, we're, we're a, a low we're right now consciousness playing with a low end BR, but there are countless others that are far more high quality. And, and, and so we, we are the one consciousness playing with all sorts of, stuff. You know, we, we know we're, but we'll, we'll, you know, others that are more interesting. And the, the, as far and again, I I don't know the final answer here by any means, but it looks like consciousness is exploring all of its possibilities. I mean, there's there's it's I'm, there's good reason to believe that consciousness has endless, in principle, endless possibilities. Something from called Godel's incompleteness theorem that makes me think that we can go into it if you want. But consciousness has literally endless possibilities and it's not will in principle to ever completely have gone through all the possibilities and so consciousness is constantly exploring all of its possibilities and 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 that's what we're doing and so part of what what we're here to do is you know, consciousness seems to be plunging itself into a virtual reality and letting itself fall asleep into it to actually get lost in the virtual reality. And if you have a really good VR game, right. And you start playing and people are shooting at you and so forth. If Once you get really into it, you can lose yourself in it. You can, you can actually all of a sudden now I'm in the game. I'm not just, you know, wearing a headset and, you know, having coffee over here and, you know, having a little fun. I'm, I'm fighting for my life. I'm, I'm in the game and I'm fighting for my life. And, and, and I, I, you know, I flinch and, the so that's what, what's happened where it's just a VR game, but we've been wrapped up in it. We've been, we've got lost in the game. And so we're taking it quite seriously. So we're learning a lot, but but then the goal is eventually to learn what we need to learn and then sort of wake up and go, wow, okay, take that headset off and move on to the next one.
0: So That's what death is. Well, that's well, one of the questions I was going to ask. Is, so firstly, if you had to take people who have taken an ayahuasca or... DMT or even LSD to a specific extent or shrooms, they would come back and say, you know, there is so much more complexity to this reality than we can see. What would be, and then they would say there is no death, that they would experience this this total love and 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 total awareness to to everyone and everything. What would be your take on that?
1: Well, my my take is that they could be having a genuine insight it could also be that they're just getting their brain scrambled right so it's it's it 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 can go either way but my guess is that there's a serious possibility that some drugs are not just screwing up your brain that some are actually opening up a portal to you know the nature of this reality beyond our our space-time headset and for us to really understand which is which we're going to have to do our science we're going to have to you know Go beyond the decorative permutations, get the next layer of software, understand the the varieties of headsets that, that, that are, that are possible. And, and then we're going to have to do the science of trying to figure, okay, these ayahuasca and these various drugs are specific chemicals, right? And we, we can see in our interface that they work at certain synapses or or certain binding sites in, in the, in neurons in the brain. So serotonin receptors are are, are a big target, for example. And so once we have been able to take our space-time headset and the brain module within that and reverse engineer it and say, okay, when we look inside brains, we see 86 billion neurons. That's just the interface version. Looks complicated, but it's trivial compared to the reality behind those neurons, right? So neuroscience is much more complicated than we, 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 you know, it's hard enough with 86 billion neurons, but that's nothing compared to the reality behind the, that, that interface representation of neurons. So we need more money for neuroscience, not less, a lot more money for neuroscience. But we have to reverse engineer and look at what's going on outside of space and time that projects down to what we see as neurons and synapses and, and chemicals binding at, at receptor sites and so forth. Once we understand that, then we can ask your question really technically, what is Hiawaska doing? What is, you know, LSD doing? And is that in our bigger picture? Is that really opening up a new pool of perception or is it just really sort of downgrading our current interface and make all part, you know, we'll find out the answer. To that but i'm open to the possibility that there are genuine insights that are coming to a realm beyond absolutely
0: well one of the interesting things i found with a lot of those is that they enhance neuroplasticity so there's a lot of research that's coming out lately where they're saying actually taking mushrooms or even mdma can help people with post-traumatic stress disorder or if you have a serious drug addiction Taking those in small doses or even slightly larger ones can actually help people to rewire their their neural processes and and start to actually change their life in a positive manner. So I did find that quite interesting compared to let's say heroin or meth or whatever, where that really just does completely screw up your body. So the yeah the science behind that I find find quite interesting. But so now when you are looking okay. at oh yeah, so I, I was thinking. When you're also saying that we are all within this virtual reality and when the simulation, what do you then think of metaverse and the the trajectory that we're going, we, we are creating virtual reality to then put on that, is that us trapping ourselves in an even smaller reality?
1: Well, well, it, it, it could be, but it could also be waking ourselves up because right now, you know, the, the stuff that we're talking about here. For, for our generation is sort of strange, right? The idea that this is, we're not seeing the truth. This is just a virtual reality headset. That, that, that's, that's a little, that's a bit of a shock to my generation. The next generation where they've spent from little, as little children, they spent a lot of time in the metaverse with a headset on. And, and, and they knew that they're, they're playing in the metaverse and they, they see these rich worlds, but they know that they're real. It's, it's not going to be a big leap to take your headset off and go, well, what about this? When I take my headset off, what about this? Could this be a, a, a metaverse as well? So I actually think it may be consciousness helping itself to wake up, but it's actually showing itself what it's doing. You, you've been lost in a metaverse, but it just is a metaverse. Look, here, here here's another metaverse. Now you can pop out of that. Now think about this is also a metaverse and you need to pop out of it. So this may be a trick that you know, consciousness is using to, to wake itself up from, from being addicted to its own uh, headset.
0: Wow. Wow. Okay. And so then the other one then is if we were taking that as a, we could potentially be in a simulation. Now, if we look at the theory of, okay, well, what happens if, so I personally spent some time meditating with some Buddhist monks and it yes. was really beautiful. And I found so much love and compassion. Because you one of the guided meditations that you sit and you just feel compassion and love towards everyone. You start with yourself and you expand and you expand and you expand. And you, uh, so my grandfather, he was a, a Methodist minister. So he was quite deeply, or is quite deeply spiritual and religious. And So when you're taking this notion in and you're applying it potentially to that framework, what would that look like? You know, if we're all saying potentially we are consciousness experiencing ourselves, you know, could that not be... Love, or if you're looking at God, or do you think that that ties into this at all?
1: I think it does, and I'm, I'm looking forward to a, a much deeper collaboration with, between science and spirituality as science starts to use its tools beyond space-time. Right? That that's going to be because the the spiritual traditions have been there for thousands of years. They've they've been saying for thousands of years that space and time isn't the fundamental reality, but there's a much deeper reality of, of consciousness, and 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 so as the scientists begin to go outside of space time and and start to th- look, at, you know, for consciousness, for example, the, the spiritual people would be there as well. We, we've been here waiting for you guys. Welcome to the party. But what the scientists will bring is that the scientists have new tools. They we we've sharpened our tools studying the headset, and so we have a we have a, a new precision in our theory building and and experimental tests. So I actually see going forward, a deep collaboration in spirituality. There's gonna be some very, very deep intuitions that the spiritual traditions have because they've been in the space for thousands of years already beyond space-time and in consciousness and, and exploring it. But they don't have the 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 rigorous tools of mathematics, for example, and, and, and precise. But the Buddhists will be, be very, very clear. They'll say, look, Anything that we say isn't it. the finger pointing at the moon is not the moon, they'll say and and they're absolutely right. And the same thing is true of scientific theories they're they're just fingers pointing. they're they're not the truth. they're just pointers. but they're the best pointers we've had so far, and that's the thing. they're, they're pointers that in their very statement of pointing, tell you their limitations. So these are good pointers because they have a, an antidote for dogmatism. It's very easy for us on the spiritual path to get attached to our pointers. Pointers are always a, a pointers to the, the realm that's unspeakable. It's, 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 it's beyond cognition and it's that it's a, the, the true deep intelligence that we are and that any mathematics, any words are, are Relatively trivial pointers. So, and yet, it's not for some reason. It's is not pointless to be involved in mathematics and language, the, the realm of, of of pointers. That's very important. That seeing consciousness needs to go back and forth between the 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 realm in which it's pure silence, no no concepts, and the realm of silence and ex, you know, realm of concepts and experience, and and there. It's easy to get trapped in dogmatism, being attached to particular pointers, particular ways of thinking about things. So science will help the spiritual traditions on that. And the spiritual traditions will help the scientists because they already have a lot of new concepts beyond space-time that the scientists haven't, haven't, most scientists haven't even thought about yet, at least scientifically. So I see a, a, a wonderful collaboration already starting and I think it will take off. And I, I do agree that ultimately, I think what's really going on is that it's, it's consciousness studying itself and ultimately loving your neighbor as yourself, as, as the Christians say, you know, as Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that, that really is loving your neighbor is loving yourself because your neighbor just is an av- another avatar of yourself. And so, you, we ultimately will learn that yes, that is what we're doing. We're learning to love ourselves and explore our possibility. But as as the uh, The Course in Miracles puts it, there is only one of us.
0: So that book, my mother read when we were really young, she that was her. She was obsessed with it. She was obsessed with The Course in Miracles. She practiced it for years. So it's it's very interesting because when I looked at that book, yes. I thought from a basic level, reading it, I was like, I wonder if this potentially, it makes you forget everything. It makes you question everything. This, this is not this. This is not what I see. So you have, exactly. what do you think of that book?
1: Well. Of course, I'm, I'm, I'm no expert, but I will just say that to the extent that I understand the book, I, I'm, I'm on board. And, you know, it says at the very start of the book, the whole book is summarized as one statement. Nothing real can be threatened. Nothing unreal exists. Herein lies the peace of God. That's the and, and if you really understand that you don't need the rest of the book because that's that is the whole book, and and from from the point of view of what I'm saying, what really, what really rings true on that is when you realize that this is just a VR and this body is just an avatar. This is the the reality is my consciousness that, that so nothing real can be threatened my consciousness. Is not going to be threatened by anything in space and time. This is just a headset and we're going to take the headset off and nothing unreal exists. So all this stuff that we're perceiving and that we, that I myself am attached to emotionally and I'm learning through meditation to let go of it. Nothing unreal exists. Herein lies the peace of God. So I, I, I understand that intellectually. I'm learning to grow into it emotionally. But the theory is very clear that it agrees with that. And that's the whole course in miracles. If, if you understand that, you don't need the rest of the book.
0: This has a, been a very unexpected conversation that has turned, taken a very interesting turn because my father's extremely atheist and he's very mathematical. I mean, he's one of the most intelligent minds. You know, I, I speak to him all the time about just any topic under the sun and there's always been this interesting controversy within my life similar to yours is you can see this take on one side, which I can see so much beauty and wisdom through meditation and compassion and just even just stilling the mind. But then I can also see this other side of understanding the constructs of space-time and scientific understanding. And so what you're saying is a very interesting theory on potentially merging the two worlds. And I, I think that's very cool. I think that is very, very cool. And the fact that it's, it can explain sorry, the fact that, that it can even explain the double slit experiment. It's yes. is crazy is, 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 is brilliant.
1: It's it, it. There's been this antipathy between science and spirituality, partly because scientists were only studying the headset, and they didn't know that there was more. But now scientists, for the first time, are realizing it's just a headset. Space-time is just a headset. Physicalism is false. Reductionism is false. It was a useful learning tool. We learned a lot of scientific tools, but it's just the reductionism is false and space-time isn't fundamental. And it's time for us to grow up and use the tools that we discovered and use the mathematics and go meet the spiritual seekers who are already there beyond space, time, but don't have these tools. See it, it, it's, it's not, it's not pointless. The scientists are coming with tools that the spiritual seekers haven't had this precision. The spiritual seekers have tools that the scientists haven't used very much, namely meditation. So when we bring our tool sets together and let go of the hostilities that have been at least since Galileo, right? Since the church is in Galileo or house in prison. There's, there's been a hostility between the two, but it's now time for the two to learn to actually co- cooperate because they're both going to learn a lot from the other. And by the way, part of the learning will be to learn that some of the things we thought were true are nonsense on both sides, on the spiritual side and the science side. So there will be shocks and there will be wonderful revelations and also Oh, I was deeply wrong. We'll we'll get both of those, and and we'll have to learn to cope with both.
0: Yeah, because even when we're talking about from the beginning, is that we favor reality versus fitness. How do you know that what you are seeing is reality? And and I had this really brilliant conversation recently, which was like trying to look at is the a, a book, The Elephant in the Brain, and it was just essentially saying how our our mind will alter what we see and how we interact, and it makes assumptions and and we understand like you were mentioning before the red ferrari how if you have a specific idea you will see that everywhere so how with even with within spirituality or within science breaks that down to say all of our perceptions we can then model and and see what what our mind is creating what patterns we're creating and we're trapping ourselves in and what actually is reality so i I definitely see that as quite interesting
1: Absolutely, and, and on that, I would recommend. There's a, a great book by Daniel Kahneman called Thinking, Fast and Slow. He won the Nobel Prize in economics, but it's for his work in psychology, and of course, psychology is very, very important in economic theory. And and so he he actually goes into a lot of these kinds of cognitive mechanisms that that, that we have. And, and I have a book on, if you want to look at these kinds of issues in, in perception and visual perception, I have a book called visual intelligence, how we create what we see. And I go into actually how we create our visual worlds and, and the assumptions that go into it, how we, how we see in 3D and so forth, but all the assumptions. So I'm very explicit about the assumptions and I illustrate all the assumptions that we use to create this virtual reality that we perceive around it. So you're right. The, the, the sciences. Can do a lot to help us understand all the assumptions that we're that we're using and in constructing our worlds, and allow us to look behind them. and And I find it helpful to to realize that I can look at my own assumptions, and I don't have to believe my own assumptions anymore. Right? Usually, we see the world through our assumptions, so we don't see our assumptions. They're the eyes through which we see the world. So it's hard to look back on your own eyes. But with with the tools, science, you can. You can take a step, question your own deep assumptions, and that's really powerful and, and a way to make progress.
0: And so what do you think would happen one day when, when you pass or when I pass away? What, what do you think will be there? Would we just turn back into the consciousness at which we have never left?
1: Well, well for, first I should say that there's the intellectual me and the emotional me. And the emotional me is still scared to death of, of dying. Look at, I, I almost died not too long ago. And so I, I know firsthand what, you know, how I react to it, but intellectually, and in you my, hopefully my, as I meditate and so forth, my emotions will, will, will come around intellectually. It's, it's quite clear. This is just a headset and the consciousness is not in space and time. Space and time is in the consciousness and it's just a headset that consciousness is using. So if it takes it off, nothing real is threatened. You, you just take off the headset. So now the specifics of my personality and my life and so forth, that may all disappear, but that's just not that terribly important. It's just the avatar, it, you know? In some sense, you know, Don Hoffman and his education and what he did—that's that, that, just an avatar story. That's not really who I am. That's just a story, and I'm not the story. I'm the consciousness that enjoyed that story for a while, but that's not what I really am. And I'm going to eventually let go of that story, and and I will not be the worse for it. So, so I I understand that intellectually, but. Believe me, I, I, if someone put a gun to my head, I'd be afraid.
0: And then what, at the moment with the, you know, I've been talking to a lot of, you know, gene editing and, you know, the various manners in which we think we could be on the precipice of just extending life. So, you know, when you have the planarians, these little creatures that can live for an extended period of time, you know, almost... Yeah, just a a huge lifespan. We could edit our genes to be like that. We could elongate our life. But then are you just elongating the virtual simulation? Are you, you know, is it, would you want to live wherever within this if it's a very small, like you're saying, tiny bandwidth kind of, you know, shallow reality?
1: Well, we know that the headset itself is going to disappear, right? The the physics of space-time is such that space-time itself is, 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 is going to either, you know, end an entropy death or collapse back into a big crunch. we, we can only delay the inevitable. We're going to, all of us will die. There's no, no immortality within the headset. So we'll all be forced to step out of the headset. There is, there's no technology to avoid that. And that seems the mathematics that I'm working on right now, makes it very, very clear that everything that we're perceiving, that these are, there's this big Markov chain of, of, you know, of the conscious, the one consciousness. And what we're perceiving in our simulation here is what's called a trace chain, we take a big chain, we look at a subset of states so we take, we, we we trace the big chain onto a subset of states. And what we perceive, it depends on which states, and how big of a trace we're doing, how, how many steps of the of what we're doing. Everything that we see is an artifact of the detail, the statistical fluctuations and so forth of the the spatial and temporal windows of a particular trace that we're on. And those traces will will end because every trace does end. And and so, and in fact, you can actually show when you look at these trace chains that you actually, you see a big bang. It's really quite interesting we're working on a new paper where we're actually gonna show that when you actually do this trace chain process, You will see that the initial thing you see early on with a small, small temporal window is it looks like high energy. It's all bosons, all high energy. And as you expand the temporal window, then you eventually get to the point where it's you get something that is called a single communicating class, which has then goes inexorably to an entropy uh, equilibrium and then vanishes. So, so we're going to actually actually use this theory, like I believe to show where the big bang and the end of the universe comes and, and there's no escaping it. It's, it's an, it's, it's a consequence of the trace chain process. You can't get around
0: it. Oh, (laughs) brilliant. I'm very much looking forward to reading your paper and beyond, and I'm just very grateful, very grateful for this time. One question I'd love to ask everyone is uh, if you had one message to share with the world, being a podcast, what, what message would that be?
1: The universe is far more surprising than we thought, and, and you are far more significant than you thought. No more special than anybody else because everybody is infinitely special. We're all the one infinite intelligence understanding itself through this particular headset. But you are not just your avatar in space time. So so we really are each of us here to wake up to how truly infinitely special we all are and everybody else is too, equally. We're all alone. Beautiful.
0: Thank you for your time. That was, that was beautiful.